0: Let's now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's begin reading in uh, verse 50. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Now I say this, brethren... That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on the immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? And the sting of death is sin and the power of sin in the, is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we come this morning with the Need, the hope, the desire to see Christ, as we say, show us Christ through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So one of the great Puritan preachers of the colonial era was a man by the name of Cotton Mather. Like all men, the day came when he was to die. And while he was on his deathbed, he exclaimed, I'm not afraid to die. If I was, I should disgrace my Savior. I'm in his hand where no ill can befall me. Death, it unites all of humanity. Death cannot be avoided. It cannot be negotiated with. It cannot be stopped, but it has been conquered. And because of that, sinners like you and me and Cotton Mather, all humanity, we have a hope that even though we die, yet we will live. Hope has a name. It's Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God who became man so that He could die in our place. And God raised Him from the grave and He now sits at the right hand of the Father. But He's coming again. And when He comes, some amazing things are going to happen. And that's an understatement. And we're focused on just a couple of those things here in our text. When He comes, He is going to raise all believers who have died from wherever their remains have been scattered and returned to the dust of the earth. He will raise them and they will have glorious supernatural bodies. But he will also transform the bodies of those who are alive at his return. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Now, in these final eight verses of chapter 15, Paul is concluding his argument for the bodily resurrection of believers. He's already argued that the dead will be raised with bodies that are imperishable and immortal. But what about those who are alive at Christ's coming? And so Paul shifts his emphasis then from the necessity of the resurrection. That's what he was arguing first. Now he shifts it to the necessity of of transformation. All must be changed. And so all will be changed. So The title of this sermon is Christ's triumphant transformation of believers. It's, it's part two. We began looking at this text last week, so we'll be concluding it this week. And what Paul is showing us here is that at Christ's return, all believers will be fundamentally transformed and Christ's triumph over sin and death will be final. At Christ's return, all believers will be fundamentally transformed and Christ's triumph over sin and death will be final. And so Paul explains three glorious results of his death and resurrection to anticipate as well as to rejoice in. And so the first result of Christ's death and resurrection that we can rejoice in is that Christ will fundamentally transform all believers. That's you, that's me, that's every believer who has ever lived and even died. He will transform them. He's already made this point regarding those who have died. That was earlier in the chapter and how they're going to be raised with the dead incorruptible or from the dead incorruptible. But now he addresses the matter of those who are alive when Christ returns. Will that be our generation? Can't say. I'm sure every previous generation has wondered the same thing. Even thought, looking out over the landscape of what's going on in the world, like, well, surely he's coming soon. Yes, he is coming soon. But whether he comes soon enough before you and I die, that's up to God. But he is coming And relatively speaking, in light of all eternity, it's going to be soon. So be ready. So first, in verse 50, Paul restates the point that he's been making, namely that Christ will alter the present form of our bodies. Look at verse 50. He says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So the Corinthian objectors, right, there were those who could not conceive that there would be a bodily resurrection. And and so Paul is saying, well, guess what? You guys, you're right. Our earthy, perishable bodies are not at all suitable for an eternal heavenly existence with God. So their conclusion then was that, well, then we must be spirits. And Paul's saying, no, no, that's not the case. We will not have an immaterial existence in the future. No, because why? Because Christ will change both the living and the dead. He says in 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So Paul had a little mystery hidden up his sleeve and it was time now to reveal it. So while the dead will be raised incorruptible, God revealed to Paul that the bodies of all those who are alive at Christ's return were, Will also be transformed. And this is going to take place. He says it's going to take place at the last trumpet. Which was something Paul also referred to to in verse 24. He called it the end. And Jesus referred to this as the last day. All of these are pointing to the same thing. Last trumpet. Last day. The end. In other words. When Christ returns. Daniel called it the end of the age. So... This idea that he will transform both the living and the dead, that's, this is nothing for God. With the same creative power by which he transforms the seed that is sown in the ground, the grain of wheat, how it becomes a stalk of wheat later on. We don't have any problem with that. Well, that's God's creative power at work. He gave that stalk of grain the body that he desired. And guess what? He's going to do the same to you and me. He's going to transform our mortal and corruptible bodies into an incorruptible and immortal form. And he will transform those believers in a moment, at the in the twinkling of an eye. So one moment, your body is natural, corruptible, tired, achy, dying. The next, your body is transformed into a form that is supernatural, incorruptible, and immortal. But physical, not ethereal. Physical. Not just the living who will be transformed, but also the believers from all time who have died. He says, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For Paul says in verse 53, he says this perishable, it must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. So Paul is explaining here why both the living and the dead must be transformed to inherit and to enter into God's heavenly kingdom. This transformation must happen because God has already decreed it for one. And so it must take place. But he's alluding here to the fact that when Christ returns, there will come about an undoing of something that has plagued mankind ever since the garden. And so my third point under this idea that we will all be transformed, all believers, is that Christ will undo the curse of sin. You know, if you remember, in the in the garden, God had warned Adam and Eve that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. But the devil's serpent, he told Eve that God's a liar, basically. They won't die. They would become like God. And... They believed Him and they ate. But if they had believed God, they would have life. They would have abundant life full of of joyful fellowship with their Father. Trusting God their Father would have protected them. But instead they listened to a deceiver. And they trusted in their own understanding. How often is that the case? Usually when we trust in our own understanding, we find ourselves someplace we never thought we'd be. As a result, God pronounced a curse on them that we uh, who sin like them, we have inherited this curse as well. So death, sin, decay, corruption, it entered into the human experience and with it all sorts of affliction and trouble. But praise God, though, he sent Jesus to reverse this curse. Paul referred to this uh, same chapter back in verse 22. He said, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Peter tells us that Jesus, he came to bear our sins in his body on the tree so that we might live to righteousness. In Romans, Paul declares, he says, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Jesus, He reverses this curse for all who will believe in Him. And this is why Jesus can reassure Martha, for example, at the grave of her beloved brother, Lazarus. He who believes in Me lives even if he dies, He said. See, Jesus wants you to know that everything that has been subject to the curse of the fall will die. Right? The old must pass away. That which is born of flesh, just flesh. Our bodies and the sinful nature woven into them will die. They must die. That is is all except for those who are alive at Jesus' return. Because Jesus is delivering us from sin as well as death. Who will deliver me from the body of this death Is is the question of the ages. See, to describe this moment when the when the curse is overturned in the transformation of our bodies Paul uses the imagery of clothing he says in, in verse 53 this perishable it must put on the imperishable this mortal must put on immortality and by putting on here Paul means bearing the image of Christ you know we we will have a bodily existence just as the risen Jesus showed the disciples in the upper room. It must happen, Paul says, so that like Christ, we can have an imperishable and immortal body with which we can serve and glorify the Lord forever. And the long chain of decay and death that began with Adam in the garden will be finally and fully broken by Christ, the last Adam. And so at the end, the last day, Christ will return. And then in a moment, will fundamentally change all believers, both the living and the dead, transforming the present form of their bodies into an imperishable, incorruptible, glorious form at which time the curse of sin that has plagued all mankind since the garden, it will truly be undone. And that is something truly to rejoice in. But there's more. You know, Queen Elizabeth II, she just passed away, as we all know, um, this past September. She was the longest living British monarch. She reigned a total of 70 years, 214 days. She surpassed only by King Louis XIV of France, who reigned a total of 72 years, 110 days. He died in 1715. Now, that's pretty amazing that the longest living, the second longest living monarch was in our era. And we knew of her. But there has been one ruler who has tyrannized the entire world from the very beginning. And his name is death. Death has been a power that has loomed as a constant threat over men, causing great fear, inflicting great pain and sorrow indiscriminately. Right? Upon all men everywhere, regardless of their age, their sex, their wealth, their rank in society. Old men die, young babies die, and everyone in between. It's like the bite of a venomous animal. It's like the sting of a scorpion's tail. It doesn't care who it hits, but it kills who it hits. Death has injected its deadly poison into every living thing. You know, you can you can live like you're immune to poison. You can fool yourself into thinking that you can outsmart death. But the day will come when you will stare death in the face. It doesn't matter how cocky. It doesn't matter how healthy. It doesn't matter how cautious you are. Oh, yes. A lot of people are so cautious to avoid anything that might lead to death. I understand that, but you're not going to avoid it. You understand that, don't you? doesn't mean we live carelessly. But please don't think that you can somehow avoid your death. Death will win in the end because death always wins. Death has been victorious every single time. It has a all, all it, it has a nothing in the loss column, all in the win column. For sons of Adam, no one has ever escaped. That is until God raised Jesus from the dead. So the second glorious result of Christ's death and resurrection that is that Christ will finally destroy death. He will first fundamentally transform all believers. And secondly, he will finally destroy death. Christ's resurrection broke the power of death for all those who believe in him. So Christian, death is no longer master over you because, as Romans 6, 9 tells us, death no longer is master over him. Death is no longer master over you, Christian, because death is no longer master over Christ. And even so, death is still an enemy. Because of Christ, we have victory over death, but we still face an enemy in death. Death still cuts you off from those you love, from what you enjoy, from what you treasure. Death separates you from those you love. Death disrupts families. It It causes immense grief still when you lose someone who is dear to you, even if they're a believer. You know, we mean well when someone, maybe a Christian, dies, a parent, someone like that, and you come up, well, they're in a better place. We mean well when we say it, but that doesn't change the fact that you miss them. You can't kiss them anymore. You can't talk to them anymore. You can't sit by their side. You can't hold their hand. They may be in a better place, but you miss them. They've left a gaping hole in your life. I'm just thankful that that Rosita has agreed not to die before me because I can't handle life without her. And I trust all the husbands would say amen to that. Women, Women can always go on without their men. But if the woman dies first, the man is soon to follow. You women are our Achilles heel. We've got all the strength to lead and to do and to conquer and to accomplish as long as you are with us. If you go, you take our strength with you. Ideally, we want to die together like the notebook. We're doing it notebook style. We're just going to climb into bed and one, two, three, and then, you know, just done, done breathing after that. You know, it, it's true that we no longer need to fear death, but we still fear all that accompanies its sting because we reside in mortal bodies, corruptible bodies. And we're experiencing that corruption and what it does to us. I can't breathe. I've got great pain. And modern day, it's certainly not just modern day, but modern day has canonized this and just said, well, therefore, kill yourself. Take this drug and die. And I understand that temptation. Nobody... We still have an enemy in death. Well, but God is over your life and your death. Trust that God will supply everything you need. Don't give in to that temptation to end your life as if you're God. Don't give in to that. Trust in your God to bring you through whatever He has planned for you. It may be painful. It will be sorrowful and maybe even lonely. But he will never abandon you nor forsake you, not even in death. In fact, he promises that he will be right there with you. Now, a day is coming, though, when all fear and all pain that is related to death, it will be over forever. Verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable. This mortal will have put on immortality, right? He, he goes back, he rehashes what, we've, what he already said, but he's bringing an emphasis. He says there's coming a day when, and that day is defined by the perishable putting on the imperishable, mortal on immortality. He says at that time will come about the triumph that two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Hosea, spoke of long ago. Right? Isaiah, he looked ahead to a day when the Lord God will swallow up death for all time and He will wipe tears away from all faces. And Paul is content to quote just the main idea. He just says, death is swallowed up. And the word here literally means, it means gulp down. It conveys just a complete destruction which leads Paul to add in the idea of Death is swallowed up in victory. The victory part's not in Isaiah, but it's all there within the idea. If you can swallow something as massive as death down, that's a victory. That's a victory. Now, earlier in the chapter, uh, Paul was arguing the necessity of the resurrection. He explained that through the resurrection uh, of Christ that God brought about the defeat of death. Look back at verse 22. He says, in Christ, all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, he has to be first. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end when he's abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so Paul is returning now to that theme. But he's doing so in a different way here. He is returning to it, but now he's returning to it with a sense of exaltation. He himself, his own eyes, had seen Jesus risen from the grave. And so it's with a confident understanding of what's to come for believers that Paul now, he mocks the defeated enemy whose days are numbered. He says there's coming a day He's speaking to death. When your victories are done and your stinger is gone, swallowed up by Christ's own victory through the resurrection. Take that, death. Where's your stinger now, death? I mean, that's the that's the that's the idea that Paul is doing what he's doing here. God's going to raise all those who are in Christ. He's going to change them into the likeness of the risen and ever living Jesus. His destruction of death will be the triumph. Of the ages. And it will be. A reason for us to rejoice. Greatly today. We sing about it all the time. But death is not the only enemy. That was overcome. By the resurrection. And so. uh, But so the. But so have the enemies. That brought about death. And brought death to all. They've been overcome as well. What are their names? He names them here for us. Sin and the law. They've been overcome as our enemies as well. So the third result of Christ's death and resurrection in which we can greatly rejoice today is that Christ has fully conquered sin and the law. He's fully conquered sin and the law. He will fundamentally transform all believers. He has He has finally defeated death and He has fully conquered sin and the law. Verse 56, The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So praise God, the Christians' victory over sin and the law, it has been won for us by Jesus Christ. That victory has removed death's sting for us. Oh, but what about those who reject Christ? That you know, may be you this morning. You're thinking, well, I haven't rejected Christ, I just haven't come to Christ. But see, if you die in the state of having not come to Christ, you've rejected Christ. Because his offer is for you to come now. And you said, no. what happens to you? Right? For the Christian, death's sting has been removed. But what about the non Christian? Well, the sting remains. It remains. What is it that will make death most terrible to the person who dies outside of Christ? It's not just the fact that they're going to die and gasp for breath or or be struck by a train or fall from a, a tree and break their neck. Get her, whatever you want to describe. It's not just that. That's not the sting of death you need to be concerned about. The sting of death is sin, Paul says, and it's going to be your sin, unbeliever, where you feel the sting of death, the sting of unpardoned sin before death. That's horrible enough, right? Even before you die, you are feeling the sting of death. I was reading a, a sermon from Spurgeon's on this passage, and as we know with Spurgeon, he's just such an excellent Uh, Wordsmith, And as I was reading, I just thought, let me just put that into my own words, but all driven by what Spurgeon was saying. You who give your lives to booze and to drugs. See, one day, the cups, they're all going to be drained. The high, it's going to be over. And when the liquor is no longer sweet to the taste, the drugs are no longer pleasing to the mind and the body, you're going to look back in sorrow. Upon years of a misspent life. This is before you die. It's going to happen. You whose mouths are filled with curses and vulgarity. One day your mind will be filled with the echoes of your filthy words. And it's going to grieve you. You who give yourself to lust and immorality. Your mind is littered with a memory of those that you have used for your own pleasure and just cast aside. And as death approaches you, yeah, you may groan with pain as your body fails, but what's going to plague you far worse is going to be the sting of your sin. You know, we all here know the meaning of the word remorse. But pray that you would never know and experience its awful meaning. The root idea of the word remorse, it means Bite. You know, today, because life just seems all around us, and death so far off and and distant into the future. Today, you play and you and you dance with your sins. They're fun. They they thrill you. We take our sins by the hand and and we dance about with them, and we eat and we drink and we party and we play. But the day is coming when those sins will bite you. They will bite you. They're like a they're like a lion that allows you to come up and pet it, and then it bites you. They're like a a snake that you that you pick up and you are amazed at its beauty, and then it bites you, injects its poison into you. The day is going to come when that bite, that remorse, it fills your soul. And the power of remorse is awful. It's terrible. It's the first pang of hell. It's like the waiting room outside the door of hell is you living in remorse over your sin and wasted life. To feel remorse is like feeling the sparks that are flying upward from hell itself. Remorse is the beginning of an eternal torment for you. See, the sting of death, well, it's the unpardoned, unrepented sin that will haunt you before you die. And as great as that sting will be to a man, it becomes far greater. A far greater sting for the person who dies unforgiven. The sting of unpardoned sin before death becomes this never-ending sting after death. We don't we don't see sin now for what it will be. Right now, it's a delight to the eyes, and it leads us to some kind of a deed. what does it become after that? See, sin assures us that that we're in control. That that we will not let things grow out of hand, not with this sin, no, no. But you have to remember, friend, that sin operates by deceit. Sin never, never remains small. It grows little by little until eventually it becomes a mountain. It begins as one just small cloud off in the sky, no bigger than your hand. But it ends with the entire sky being overcast and bitter rain pouring down. But what does it become after that? What does it become after this life is over? Where death leaves you, judgment finds you. As you die, so shall you be forever. See, forever is a long time. right? But we can only think in terms of time. Judgment will last a long time. But my friend, that doesn't paint the picture. Judgment will not last for a long time. It will be forever. It will be beyond time. It will be outside of time because time will be no more. There will only be the eternal. There is no time when the sting of judgment ends for the sinner who has been condemned by God. Now, do you feel death's sting now? Do you feel regret, remorse over how you have made your life about pursuing sin and not forsaking it? Pursuing sin and not pursuing pardon? Well, my friend, if death finds you in that state, that state of unforgiveness, you will be forever in that state and you will be forever drowning in a bottomless sea of remorse. Never able to find relief from the sting of unpardoned sin. You can think of a more wretched thought. But there is still hope. There is hope for you. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. You can be forgiven all of your sins, past sins, present sins, even future sins, if you will turn from them today to Christ. He'll take them and he'll take all of them and he will bear them away for you. And he'll replace the bitterness of remorse with the sweetness of relief and the joy of pardon. It's true, your your sin is real and, and along with remorse, it brings Fear And it brings shame. And because you don't know how to resolve that fear, you run away from God. You distract yourself with more sin and you pretend that you're not as afraid as you really are. But no matter what you do, no matter what distraction you put before you, sex, drugs, toys, fame, when you lie down, you put your head on your pillow at night, The fear and the remorse that you feel over your sin, it's still there. And it always will be until you turn to Christ. Let me tell you right now, you can't escape your sins any more than you can escape death. They will find you out. But your sins, they can be forgiven in Christ and you can know true peace. You can know rest and you can know joy and you can know it today and you can know it forever. Is that good news to you? You can be forgiven. You can be set free. See, Christ has made this possible. He's fully conquered sin. He's fully conquered the law. He took my sin upon Himself. He died the death that I deserved and He gave to me, a sinner, His own perfect righteousness. He made me acceptable before a holy God. He justified me in His sight. And He'll do that for you too. He'll do it for all who believe in Him. what I've laid out for you. It's the Gospel. Gospel means good news. There's no better news for the sinner than to hear that he could be forgiven. If you've not responded to this Gospel by believing Christ, I've explained to you the best I can why you desperately need to do so Today, and you need to do it now. Don't heed that inner voice that says, Yeah, yeah, I need to repent someday. That is your sin talking, deceiving you into doing nothing. Your sin doesn't want you to repent, your sin doesn't want you to turn to Christ. It's going to tell you anything to convince you to leave here today. The same way you came in, in bondage. You know, Sin operates like those cold callers right, who already have a response to every polite way that you're trying to say that you're not interested. The only way that you're getting off that phone without wasting more time, without wasting money, or both, is by hanging up. <laughs> hanging up. That's old school. Hanging up. That's the only way you get off the phone with them. And the same is true for sin. The only way that you're going to be forgiven and free is by repenting today. Not someday. Today. Someday never comes, friend. Today is the day of salvation. But in these verses, Paul takes the opportunity to give us a brief theology of the understanding of the relationship of sin and the law to death. And so let's just take a few moments here as we close to make sure that we understand what Paul's explaining here. Paul first explains that the power, he first of all explains the power of sin and death. So where does sin and death get their power to sting us? Well, first of all, death's power, he says, comes from sin. The sting of death is sin, Paul says. So men die for one reason. They die because they sin. Without sin, there is no death. Sin is the it's the deadly poison that has led to death. Why? Because sin is a moral penalty against God and the punishment is death. That's why God's the lawgiver. Sin is lawlessness. It's acting as if there is no law or that the lawgiver has no authority. And sin entered the world through the first man, Adam. He chose to disobey God. And thus both sin and death were brought into the world. Now, Paul mentions this briefly in uh, verses 21 and 22 of chapter 15. Just go back there. He says, for since by a man came death for us in Adam, that's us. We're descendants of Adam or in Adam all die. So Paul summed this up in, in Romans 6:23: The wages of sin is death, right? When you work for someone, you earn a wage. You are trading your skill, your knowledge, your time, your effort for money in the form of a paycheck. You don't have to say thank you. You can be courteous when someone hands you something. Oh, thank you. But you're not saying thank you for giving you money because you earned that money. It's yours because you traded it for your work and your effort. A wage is not a gift. It's payment for services rendered. And death is payment for your sin. You're earning death every time you commit a sin. And payday's coming. Death gets its power over you from sin. But where does sin get its power? And Paul explains, secondly, that sin's power, it comes from the law. The power of sin is the law, he says. And so... Through Adam came sin and death. God Himself told Adam, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, you're going to die. Adam ate and he died. He, he sinned and he earned death. And resulted in the entire human race now being born in a state of sin. We sin because we have an inherited nature, a sinful nature that we inherited from our father, Adam. And so, sin and death came through Adam, whereas the law, it came later, and it came through Moses. So, the holy character of God was codified into a written law. And He gave this law through Moses so that man would become aware of his sinfulness. It says in Romans 4.15, For the law brings about wrath... But where there is no law, there is no violation. See, the law functions to us like God's words functioned in the garden to Adam. That's how the law functions for us. Just like it did when God spoke his words to Adam. What did God say to Adam? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. That's the word of God. So a line was drawn and Adam stepped across it. And so he died. He ate. He died. So God tells mankind in the law given through Moses. He says, don't covet. All men covet. So all men die. See, sin did not begin with the law, though. It began with Adam. That's where sin began. And that resulted in him dying. And guess what? What? Every single person that has come from Adam has continued to sin. How do we know this? They died. You only die because of sin. So in the many ages before there was a law, there was still death, which means people were sinning all the time. Every day. And they were dying as a result. This is what Paul explains in in Romans 5. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world... And death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. Right? Before there was a law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses when the law was given. Everyone, was, everyone died. Why? Because they were sinning. So men were already sinning. So why did, God, why did God even give the law then? What purpose does the law serve? The law brings an awareness of sinfulness. It defines sin. It makes sin observable as sin. It demonstrates that a person's actions are ultimately against God, the one who gave the law, the law giver, and therefore deserving of condemnation just like Adam. Death is a result of sin. And that sin has now been defined, not now, but it was by when it was given through Moses. It was then defined in the law. Now, hearing this, it makes it sound as if the law is bad. As if, well, if we just got rid of the law, well, then that removes sin's power to bring death. No, no. Before the law, people were dying because they were sinning. The law simply defines sin so that men would know. They would be accountable. They would be without excuse. And that's why the law is a good thing. But at the same time, the law can't save you. The The law can't save anyone. Men think that the law can save them because they think they can keep it. But because of our sinful nature that we inherited from Adam... It actually provokes us to sin, right? We're born with a sinful nature and along comes the law and says, don't covet. That's like saying, don't think of a pink elephant, which you're all are thinking of right now. Don't covet. Guess what? You're you're ready to covet. It just provokes that sinful response in you because you have a sinful nature. It says, don't covet. Our sinful nature, nature says, I'll covet if I want to covet. As a result of God giving the law, mankind is now found guilty before God, right? There are none righteous, not even one. You're not the exception. You never will be. There's none who does good. You're not the exception. That doesn't mean that we don't do good things. That means you'll never do good in the sense of being declared by God righteous. That won't happen by you. There's none who does good, not even one. He keeps reiterating that because there's always people who think, well, you get into heaven by being good, right? No, there's not even one. The law, it only kills. It kills by first defining man's depravity and rebellion against God and then condemning him to death for breaking it. And again, why is this a good thing? The law makes something absolutely, undeniably clear. You need a Savior. You are a sinner and you have broken God's law uncountable times. You have rebelled against the lawgiver. You have despised His authority over you as God, as, a cre- as your Creator. And you stand condemned before God and you are justly sentenced to death. Both physical, which will happen, and spiritual, which will follow. There is nothing you can do to change this. But there is something God has done. He has provided a Savior to take your place. To bear your sin. To die your death. To suffer your penalty. And to make you righteous and justified before a holy God. His name is Jesus Christ. And through Him and through Him alone, we gain this victory. And this is this is what causes Paul to burst out in verse 57. He says... Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I had no hope of such a victory and neither do you. So thanks be to God who gives it to us through his son, Jesus Christ. The penalty for sin, it has been fully paid in Christ by Christ. Death, which has reigned over every man born of Adam. It's now robbed of power because our sin and our rebellion, it has been forgiven through Christ's atoning death on the cross. Christ substituted Himself for us. The innocent for the guilty. And then He rose from the grave. Death had no hold on Him. No power over Him because He Himself had no sin. His resurrection proved death is conquered. And through faith, the same victory over sin and death, it becomes ours. Thanks be to God. As God made you aware this morning that you stand condemned Before God, because you have sinned against God. Don't think you have room to negotiate for a lighter sentence. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Has God made you perhaps more grateful for your Savior and what he's done for you this morning? Well, Christian, he has a glorious future in store for you It's going to be inaugurated at His return when He transforms you and makes you fit to serve and glorify Him forever in a brand new supernatural body. At Christ's return, all believers will be fundamentally transformed and Christ's triumph over sin and death, it will be final. But what about your life right now? See, all that we've talked about concerning what is to come, friend, that should directly impact how you are living today. And that's verse 58, which we'll get to next week. Let's pray. Father, impact our lives today. Show us we live even though we die. But we must live for Christ. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. But for you who are here that, that don't know you, that you know they don't know you because you don't know them. Maybe they've been in church for many years. They know a lot about You, but they don't know You. Oh God, would You show them that today? Would You show them that they're apart from You and that even though they've done many things in Your name, that's not the same as knowing You? Because the evidence is that they practice lawlessness. They're still in their sin. Sin is still their master, not Christ. Convict them in love. Convict them and lead them to a saving knowledge of You where they can repent and believe. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.